0: So this is one of these, like, really wonderful full circle moments for me. Dr. Jared Silva, who is an associate professor of anthropology at Dartmouth College, and he's a paleoanthropologist and an anatomist. He did some of his graduate work at the University of Michigan, and and then he had been elsewhere and then came to Michigan with his advisor, Laura McClatchy. He was my TA when I was an undergrad at Michigan, and he was actually one of the really big reasons that I continued in anthropology as a career is he was just and i I shouldn't say was in the past tense because he still is but then for me he was a really wonderful supportive person who had this infectious enthusiasm for what he was doing and it and it totally like rubbed off on all of the students as well like we got super excited about the things he was super excited about and yeah the support and encouragement that came from him was like really helpful in solidifying my desire to pursue this field as a career because I'm like if this field is filled with people like Jerry De Silva, then I totally want in to be surrounded by such wonderful human beings.
1: Well, it's not quite like Sharon DeWitt because I met Sharon in grad school and I was her TA, but it's still it's still nice to circle back around to people. Is. who got to see us when we were tadpoles and to, to like, basically, we're doing this podcast so we can stand in front of them and go. And this yeah. is
0: the- Give like, me like, you know, the acceptance. Listening. I'm a professional now. <laughs>
1: I've got a go named Zip Up because
0: I work here. But um, yeah, so this is like one of those, I mean, I don't know if it's an emotional like interview for me, but it is in a way because it is very meaningful for me to be in a position now to interview him. Yeah. Um, and we'll also like, like I, I, I told you earlier in the week that I am now on a dissertation committee with Milford Woolpuff, who was my undergraduate advisor. And so that's another, I'm having a lot of like weird full circle career moments right now.
1: Well, the testament there is not only, obviously he trained a shit ton of people, but he's still
0: going, man. I know, I know. I'm going to bring us back though, to Jerry. Oh, right. This should all be about Jerry because I adore Jerry and I'm so unbelievably excited to have him on the show. So he have two books. Out this year. Not one, but two. I know. Um, The one that we're not going to talk about today is called The Most Interesting Problem, which is an edited volume. And like, I would love to like have a round table with all the authors in that book. Mm. But the one we're actually going to talk about today is called First Step, How Upright Walking Made Us Human. And just to let you know that one, I enjoyed the book, but also my cat Hecate gave it her stamp of approval, By chomping a giant chunk out of the corner of the book jacket. That's the stamp? It was. I was reading it and she decided to crawl on my lap and then chew on the book. She approved. It was tasty enough to keep chewing until I made her stop.
1: I found this one funny because we've read several energetic books lately and teeth books and they all sort of walk us through, here the pun, of human evolution. And sometimes I'm like, okay, what more could anyone possibly say in a book that just came out that is new? And then I get about a third of the way in and I'm like, ah, oh, shit, I wish I was teaching intro to Bioanth again right? so I could fix the things I said mm-hmm. and talk about this.
0: I'm going to totally include a lot of this when I teach Fundamentals of Bioanth next semester. But also, like, this book comes at a great time in the sequence of having talked about Dan Lieberman's book and about Herman Ponser's book. Like, you start seeing all the lines connecting all the things. And, mm-hmm. and so it's been a lot of fun. But he's also here. Shall I let him in?
1: He is. I saw him. Flash up and then go away.
0: Oh, you see that too? I I only thought the host sees that.
1: Oh, yeah, no, I saw it too. Oh, look at that lab.
2: I know.
0: Hi, Jerry.
1: Oh, wait, there's a
2: human in front of it. (laughs) Hi, Chris. Hi, Kara. (laughs)
1: Hi, nice to meet you in
0: person.
2: Nice to meet you you as well. Kara, great to see you again.
0: I was just regaling Chris of you're actually one of the reasons I decided to pursue anthropology as a career. And so this is like, one of these like really emotional interviews for me because like you were there at the beginning for me there at at the the beginning. Yeah.
2: Yep. Yep. I don't know if I can take any credit though. You were a shining star. You, you were heading off.
0: As I told Chris, you were incredibly encouraging and supportive, and like one of the big reasons was like if everyone in anthropology is like Jerry, hell yeah, I want to be in the field of anthropology <laughs> because you were so like you know oh I was God, a, what,
2: what have I done?
0: <laughs> I was some sort of like ass kissing you know undergrad, and like you didn't have to give me the time of day and support, and you totally did, and that it means so much, and I think it's also formed, and I'm sure Chris has had similar experiences, but like how I work with undergrads and graduate yeah. students and how i approach them because that makes a difference
2: it does it, it
1: turns it, out it, being a nice person to your students is has a positive effect
2: who knew that's right yeah. you it get to sense. be on their <laughs> podcast years later
1: <laughs> 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 I, <laughs> that's I, right I just, I just ran some analysis for a paper coming out in our academics issue and it turned and and the data show that supportive faculty advisors colleagues and institutions buffer stress effects so there you go and also make people happy <laughs> so so you gotta tell me is that a floresiensis or an australopithecine standing on your counter
2: oh that's that's australopithecus sediba okay Ah. yeah yeah that's the the beautiful sediba it's a composite it's partially from the boy's skeleton mh1 and what we think is the the adult female skeleton mh2
0: interesting composite (laughs) put together a juvenile of one sex and then an adult of another
2: hey I'll that's what some... we do that's what we do in paleoanthropology right? you also have some fancy colors on your cat wow. i'm seeing a lot of blue so the, bl- the blue is when the fossil's black but i want to show that there are pieces missing uh, okay. so yeah mm-hmm. in due to that's in due right there okay and then uh yeah so uh after after i left michigan um or right before i left michigan i molded and cast all of Milford's <laughs> collection.
0: I have 10 skulls myself from doing that same thing.
2: (laughs) And then I had students paint them. I had some art students come to the lab and paint them to look as much like the originals as possible. And yeah, it was really fun to sort of go through that exercise because they all have their own color to them as well. They're all Mm. their own sort of geological history, their own, you know, flavor. Flavor.
0: So you're licking the skulls as well now, Jerry.
2: Well, again, again, that's what we do as paleontologists, (laughs) right? Is it a rock or a a bone? bone? (laughs) That's right, you
1: got it. <laughs> now, are you really in your lab or is this one of those I, Zoom no, things you throw up?
2: I'm, I'm here. I'm here. Oh.
1: Yep. Yep. I was going to say because I was impressed with how your finger was actually pointing to the...
2: And the you didn't actual.
0: see like the halo around the figure. The finger. <laughs> yeah, right,
2: yeah. right.
0: Anyway, Jared, thank you so much. I mean, you must be busy. You have two books out this year, which is insane. Uh, and, and we and we introduced them just a little bit before we, we brought you on. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast. We really appreciate it.
2: Well, I'm happy to do it. Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: And uh, so the moment I opened your book and I read like the little kind of introductory bit, I'm like, Jerry has already answered the first question we ask on this show every single time, which is tell us your origin story and, and how you actually got into anthropology, because you have a bit of a... A wandering journey as well that maybe a lot of people don't know about. Tell us a bit about that.
2: Right. So I never took a biological anthropology course as an undergraduate. I tell my students that all the time, that they really don't need to know, uh, you know, what they want to do with the rest of their lives when they're 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. Some people do, but but I didn't. I was studying astrophysics at, at Cornell, and then I was really struggling with the advanced math and the physics. And I switched over to physiology because I, you know, even as a kid, I knew I wanted to be a scientist. I was always asking, you know, those why questions, right? Why, why are things the way they are and lifting up rocks and logs. And I remember my parents got me this, um, this used telescope at a yard sale and um, looking at the craters of the moon the first time, just, I'll, I'll never forget that. It just sort of blew me away that there's this amazing world out there that, that we're a part of um, and it's understandable right that we can actually figure it out so science to me was was pretty special um i just didn't know which science and uh and i struggled and struggled and struggled i ended up getting a degree in physiology um so instead of you know learning how galaxies work it was sort of learning how the cardiovascular system worked and then i didn't know what i wanted to do and i graduated i applied for a bunch of biotech jobs and none landed and i ended up applying to work at the boston museum of science and I started out part-time there and then got a full-time position. And I rediscovered my love for science there. It was, it wasn't about answers. It was about the questions you ask. It was about wondering you know i wonder why that's happening and how do we know you know you, you hear about a new discovery made and it's but, but how do we know that what's what's the what's the evidence and for five years at the science museum you know it was all about being curious and and wondering with visitors who were little kids sometimes and sometimes it was their grandparents um and so talking to people of all different ages and all different backgrounds uh, about this incredible we do as humans, which is wonder about ourselves and wonder about our our world and then seek evidence to try to figure it out. And that's when I first discovered paleoanthropology was at the Boston Museum of Science. We had our liatoly footprint exhibit positioned a little too close to the dinosaurs for my liking. Um, And I thought it might spread misconceptions about, about, you know, humans and dinosaurs coexisting, which we of course know that is not the case unless you're talking about birds. (laughs) which are descendants of the dinosaurs. And I asked to move that exhibit to our human biology area. And my boss said, sure, but go and learn everything you can about the Lyotoli footprints. And and while you're at it, read some books on human evolution. Um, And I said, okay. And I took out Ian Tattersall books and From Lucy to Language uh, by Don Johansson. And I was hooked. My God, the, the idea that these fossils not only told us about ourselves, but each one, you know, had its own story, right? Each fossil had its own discoverer. Each fossil was an individual and in that we can we can actually learn about their lives and retell their stories millions of years after they lived them. To me, it was just, yeah, yep, I had found it. That's what I wanted to do. Uh, and so I, I had to quit the museum. It was very sad for me to leave the museum, but I started a new journey uh, in Laura McClatchy's graduate lab. Um, First at Boston University and then and then at at University of Michigan, which is where I met you, Kara.
0: And so the one thing I absolutely love. Sorry, Chris. So our listeners at home can't tell this, but Jerry during this literally picked up a skull and was showing it. And like you can hear the enthusiasm. And the phrase I'm going to use might not really apply, but you still have the wonder and awe, almost like the childlike wonder. (laughs) Still, like through to (laughs) adulthood that so many adults end up losing. And that was one thing about first steps that i love so much is that like enthusiasm just jumped off of the page like i could still see how much you are amazed by every single fossil you you look at every single time and that you still love it so much
2: i mean i have my cranky days but <laughs> like Who you doesn't? know I, mean, <laughs> I love what i do I, I feel incredibly fortunate um to have found this you know this this occupation you know i i get i get paid to travel around the world and study fossils like are you kidding me and then to teach about it and to and to wonder about about our own origins and evolution with a bunch of students who also are interested in that topic i, I yeah I, I i feel incredibly lu- lucky to 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 do this
1: i want to project on you for a second see see what you think because i also used to work in museums before i returned to academia and so thinking about Kara's Kara's comment, right? Like my childlike wonder is reserved for oftentimes when I speak to children and I can invoke it when I speak to undergrads. My sort of default with undergrads and grad students is a sort of a more snide personality because I think of them as being sort of snide and sarcastic. And I have to sort of draw on my museum educator uh, when I would speak to more general audiences where I dispensed with any of that sarcasm and snideness because it, it never went over very well. Um, so I'm kind of curious as to what you did at the museum and, and if if there's any relationship there. Uh, I, use, uh, I, use, I call it the U of enthusiasm and I always say in museum education the most enthusiastic people are the third graders and 83 year olds and at the bottom is undergrads and so um, and I explain it to them but I that, that's why I, I'm trying to mirror them, right, in yeah. the classroom, and I wonder if, if you had any resonance with that.
2: I love that. I had not heard that, the U of enthusiasm. I, I, I really love that, and I certainly could see that. So when I was at, at the Museum of Science, I was a floor educator. Um, I was I, I did a lot of informal interpretation, and so on any given day, I had no idea what I was going to be teaching about. Uh, some days we would pull out what we called a pluck, a heart and lung of a, of a sheep that maybe was freshly delivered from the butcher. And we would teach you about the heart and lung that day and we would do a dissection. And maybe, you know, the next day I would go down to our live animal center and I would pull out a corn snake and wrap a corn snake around my, my wrist and go and meet visitors as they were coming into the exhibit halls and talk to them about, you know, well, where, where do you think the tail starts on a snake? That's always a fun one. Um, that a snake is actually mostly body and only a tiny little bit little bit of tail. Um, or we had what were called glass lizards, which are lizards, but they don't have legs. And so everyone says, oh, look at the snake. And it's, no, it's actually not a snake. It's a, it's a legless lizard. But how do we know that? You know, what is our anatomical evidence for that? And then of course you can talk to them about genetics and how it would be more similar to an iguana than to, uh, uh, than to a rattlesnake or something like that. And then some days, right, it would be talking about human evolution. At the museum, we had uh, cotton-top tamarin monkeys on, on display. And so we spent a lot of time talking about primates and primate evolution, but also about animal behavior studies. And we would have visitors, they would spend about a minute or two observing the monkeys recording every 30 seconds what the monkeys were doing and uh, just to get a taste of you know what a primatologist has to do. And most of them would get bored. And it'd be like, okay, now imagine you're in the middle of the jungle and you have to do this for six months. That's how we learn what we know about these, these animals. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think what kept me enthusiastic and excited at the museum was that um, every day was something new. And I learned so much. I learned so much more working at the Museum of Science than I did in in four years at Cornell. <laughs> and, and maybe I shouldn't say that out loud because I teach at Dartmouth now and, you know, um, but, oh, every day I was learning from volunteers, learning from visitors. And one of the biggest things I learned was that um, when someone asks you a question and you don't know the answer, the best answer is, I don't know. Like, isn't that a great question? And it's not some deficiency on your part that you don't know, it's, it's wow, you asked a great question. Now, either either I don't know, but but the scientific community does. So let's do some research to try to figure out the answer. or you asked a question that no one knows the answer to, and you just hit the scientific jackpot. Like that is that's a PhD thesis now that you just you just asked. And and of course, I don't know is not something that we teach our kids and our middle schoolers and our high schoolers and our college kids to, to say and we, we penalize them uh, if they say, I don't know, on an exam or something. And so I, I struggle with that as, a, as now a teacher that has to give grades um, because I celebrate the I don't know answer to, to questions. I
0: mean, this, this hits home because I, I do that in class a lot. I think originally like when I first started out as a professor which doesn't feel like being a professor, you still feel like a student. I didn't want to do that. I don't know, because it felt like I lost authority in a classroom and that can be very true for women, especially. But then I just got really comfortable with it. Like, yeah, I don't know. Let's find out. And then like, it has become a running joke in almost every class where I hand out PhD (laughs) ideas, (laughs) like go get your PhD in this, 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 and this, and just keep a running list of all the big, I don't knows. Um, But you know, everything you just said about your experience at the museum, you have this passion for education and you're very talented at it. Like you're you're a good educator. And that comes off very strongly in the book, which is here. Uh, and so let's talk about the book, which we have you on the show for. And again, you have two out right now. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about that one first and what inspired it. And then then we can talk about first steps and what inspired that. Sure,
2: sure. So with the most interesting problem, um, I, I I really like anniversaries. I like, you know, I feel like they're an opportunity to reflect on, on your discipline or you know, uh, or, or, or your marriage or, you know, whatever it is. Um, anniversaries to me, I, I think are, are kind of fun moments. And uh, this was probably in 2017. I was looking ahead to, to things coming up. Um, and 2021 was the 150th anniversary of Darwin's Descent of Man. And it seemed to me, and I was thinking initially about teaching a class, that I'll teach a class where we read Descent of Man, and then we read articles. And, and, and you know, what do we know now? Because, you know, Darwin didn't have a crystal ball. Darwin was a scientist and was interpreting the evidence that he, that he had at the time and laying out a series of hypotheses, some of which continue to be supported, but some of which are not. And that's the nature of science. You're going to be wrong about certain things. Um, and then it sort of developed into a book idea. And originally <laughs> for about 10 minutes, I thought I could write this myself. <laughs> and then I realized that no way that uh, our, our discipline has become so specialized and, and, and there are all these incredibly talented science communicators out there that could write about the different chapters that Darwin uh, wrote about in his, in his two volume, The Son of Man. And so I talked to Allison Collette, who's an editor at Princeton University Press, She liked the idea as well. She thought I should pare back and only focus on human evolution rather than on sexual selection, um, which would have made the book monstrous if we had done that. And then it was a matter of finding a team of people who could write about the different things that Darwin wrote about. And we assembled an incredibly talented group. Alice Roberts, Johannes Haile-Selazi, Holly Dunsworth, Augustine Fuentes, uh, and Gibbons wrapped the whole thing up janet brown the historian darwin historian wrote the introduction and it just ended up being this really fun project piecing together and and reflecting on you know the state of our knowledge of our field right now uh, through the lens of darwin and you know he he there were a few things he was quite prophetic about and you know an amazing scientist but also as we are as human beings quite biased and you see through his writing his his white male centric approach to the world. And we can take him to task for that. And we should do that. I think he would, he would expect that of future scientists, that they would challenge his ideas as a good scientist would, 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 would recognize. Uh, and so Augustine Fuentes' chapter and Holly Dunsworth, especially, uh, really challenge his writings about race and uh, about sex differences, because he went off the rails uh, when he wrote those chapters. Those are some of the, some of the worst chapters, um, some of the worst writing he ever did. Uh, was in those, in those chapters where, you know, here's a guy who's so focused on evidence and he had the evidence right in front of him and concluded something wildly different. And it's not like he wasn't one to, to, outside the box either and yet he couldn't do it and it just really for me hammered home the the power of bias and how we have to you know recognize that and reflect on that as much as as much as possible so that that book came out in february of 2021 right at the 150th anniversary of descent of man we plan to have a big gathering at Dartmouth to celebrate the, <laughs> the launch. Uh, but we are hoping for next year uh, to, be, to be doing that with, with all of our um, chapter writers uh, present for that event.
1: So I love that you are taking Darwin to task. You start off first steps uh, with a lovely review. For those of us who teach Bioeth, we may come off like a review. For those who haven't read anything for a while, it's a really good recap. Of where we are now, and then you get to taking some other folks to task. We have uh, a new era of modern, of open science, but we still have some folks mm-hmm. out there who are not super open. So I wonder if you could, if you would be willing to talk a little bit about your adventures in getting people to share their data, because you have had some amazing collaborations based on you know people barely knowing you and being willing to to. Uh, fork over uh neary Economy boy is fossils like on day one right for <laughs> uh, boy whatever mm-hmm. you call them. Mm-hmm. and then, and then other stories All
2: right so the, this other book um that we're talking about first steps how upright walking made us human this has been in the in the works sort of in my in my brain for a while um and you know it wasn't until i was really established here at Dartmouth that I felt comfortable writing this book, but this is a book that I've wanted to, to write for a long time, you know, because my research in, in all sorts of ways will intersect with this I- idea of, of upright walking and bipedalism and how it came to be. And then in the last, you know, 15 years, the incredible discoveries that our field has made and really surprising discoveries of new species of Australopithecus, I think Artipithecus ramidus was surprising in its anatomy, Homo floresiensis, I mean, who could have called that one, Homo naledi, so all these really amazing new discoveries that that fleshed out this story, I think, of of diversity and variation when it comes to thinking about locomotor variation, different ways of walking in in the past, and so um, this book was sort of born out of my own research, but then also really being awed by the work that my colleagues were doing, trying to answer this question of what? You know why we are the way we are, and how upright walking uh, shaped that. And some of that, to get to to your your question now, some of that was a result of individuals, you know, finding fossils and then recognizing that they alone couldn't bear the the brunt of the work to to not only describe the anatomy, but but then to interpret the function of partial skeletons being being discovered. Yeah, maybe in you know decades past we could have done that. Um, but not anymore. There are too many really I- talented people in the field doing specialized work that can get you to that answer, uh, or at least closer to some reasonable interpretation of what these ancient fossils were up to. But only if you provide access, only if you sort of open the doors to your lab and say, you know, something. I'm going to invite lots of people in to interpret to interpret these fossils. But then there's another step to this, which is, but maybe we're wrong. And so we're gonna to have to open the door to everyone, even those who are gonna to try to disprove our ideas because that's, that's what science ultimately is, is, is gonna be about is, is having a repeatability, other indivi- individuals being able to have access to that same material and try to replicate what you did. And do they then interpret the remains in this, in the, in this in the same way? And so throughout my career, what I've generally found is that paleo is, is composed of a, of a number of scientists um, who are uh, as curious as I am, as, as curious as, 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 as little kids are just trying to figure out you know, why we are the way we are, and, and we get to work on fossils, and we all just love it, and we will share fossils. And so I have had very good experiences in this, in this science um, with colleagues sharing material um but there are exceptions and those exceptions are really they're puzzling to me look you know i come from this from the background of a science museum can you even imagine you know talking to some kid about this new fossil oh this is new fossil and and it's amazing and it has this morphology and this shape and it tells us this and the the kids like oh i want to see it And you're like nope can't see it sorry Sorry, I can't, I can't show it to you. This, this, uh, <laughs>
0: right? The, like the amazing what? thing is, is like, I remember my days back in Michigan, like Milford telling these stories. So Milford Woolpuff, uh, who, who's still in Michigan, actually, like telling these stories of paleoanthropologists just sitting on fossils for literal decades and not allowing people to look at it. And then that really becomes the question of how do you get at the truth of it or even hypothesize what, what it might be revealing when people keep it quiet, and if maybe some sort of field standard should be implemented to kind of prevent this from happening,
2: I don't know. I don't know what the answers are because um, you know there are lots of stakeholders here, and, and you know there, there there are legitimate arguments made that you know look these fossils don't belong to the to the individuals who find them; they belong to the the countries where they're found. And if those are the policies that are established in those national museums, then who am I? You know, as a as an American scientist, to to, to challenge that and to argue uh, against that, uh, and yet, you know, for the for the sake of the scientific inquiry and repeatability of our of our science, um, I think we can push back uh, against that. And thankfully, there are models out there of colleagues who have who have worked with government officials and established policies of sharing of fossils, and it doesn't have the detrimental effects that we've been warned might happen. For instance, if you share a fossil, then uh, researchers will not come to look at the original. And in fact, it's had the opposite effect. Um, When you get a chance to look at the casts, when you get a chance to look at the 3D scans, you see things that are fascinating and then you even more want to see the original so that you can verify what you've seen and test hypotheses that are generated from that. So Kara, uh, I think a lot about mi- my Michigan days as well and how I must have spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, weeks and weeks staring at Lucy and, and looking at every little piece of a first generation cast of Lucy that, that Milford Walpole had. And it led to all sorts of ideas, just seeing those bones you know, uh, allows you to take that next step and ask some questions, right? Oh, I wonder what's going on here. I wonder why the ankle looks like that. I wonder why the hip looks like that. That's where where scientific questions are generated from, is through those observations. And yet now, you know, I, I, what a, what an incredible opportunity, right? That I got to see Lucy. I took it for granted, because right now, no graduate school, or very few, I should say, in in the in the country, have the same opportunity to see. The skeleton of Artopithecus ramidus, or to see an original cast of Solanthopus chatensis. And so we as a scientific community are missing out on those observations, we're missing out on the dozens and dozens and dozens of s- sets of eyes that would spot something interesting and peculiar and unusual, and and wow, I wonder why this is that way and not that way. and. And, and you know, to think that the original researchers who found these have noticed it all and have spotted everything there is to know on these skeletons is so arrogant. So I, I, I will never understand finding a fossil, making, making this incredible discovery and then not wanting to share it with the world and give everyone, you know Oprah style, right? You get a saw anthropist and you get a saw anthropist. And just sharing them with, with um, the research community, sure but also with science museums and with K-12 schools and, you know, hey, biology high schooler, you want to know what a common ancestor of a human and an African ape might look like, might, right? We're not sure, but might look like, and you hand them a solanthropus, like figure that one out. It's a fascinating specimen. So I, you know, Chris, I will never understand not wanting to to share these, these fossils, but, but it's a rare thing. And I think our field is moving in a direction of more open access. And I think, you know, Hopefully, a couple of decades from now, or even sooner, uh, this will be old news.
1: I mean, I, I, I bring it up, and I, I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus. Folks can read your book to find out who we're talking about, and those in the know know who we are talking about. But I, I think you're right, and I but I think it's worth reinforcing. Right, we're in a like what what is going to change? Well, it's it, it's changing. People you know, no offense to them, they die off, and and new people grow up, and there has been a paradigm shift, and I was, uh, so full disclosure, uh, Matthew Berger is a student in my program, so Lee Berger has been here several times, and will come in from the field and literally draw a sketch of rising star on the chalkboard for our grad students, and tell them, without having them in hand, exactly what they found well before publication and having heard that story now many many times, I have heard that the science moved faster. everyone involved made more money, not less by sharing everything. Um, I'm I'm thoroughly convinced that open science is is a model and having worked in museums the and also worked in a lot of different institutions including my own without the resources to have really good collections because it costs yeah. so much to get these casts. I'm 100% on board. And then your work is so specific in that you're looking at at pieces which require you to have access to everyone's collections, right? If we're going to tell right. this whole story about bipedalism, then you do need someone who has seen everything. And, and I wonder then if you could then let's toggle away from complaining to like some of the hmm. cool things that you have found. Um, I know there are lots of them, but one that jumped out to me was this idea of artipithecus actually being arboreal primarily arboreal did i read that right and not a mix i think
2: i think so um you know, I, I think if, I think if you have a grasping big toe and selection is maintaining a grasping big toe, as it is an Ardipithecus ramidus that, you know, I, I've seen the original Ardipithecus ramidus material in, in Ethiopia and, you know, that, that grasp, that, that, that big toe is very, very African ape-like and, you know, this is a good climber. Um, and, and it's up in the trees, I think for a good chunk of its, of its day, if I could, you know, reconstruct a day in the life of an Ardipithecus, my guess is it's spending most of its time up in a tree, but then, yeah, when it comes down to the ground, I, I don't work on hands very much, but but I, I find the interpretation pretty convincing that there's no evidence that it then is knuckle walking on the ground. But what I what I do know a little bit about is you know the shape of a pelvis or uh, the shape of a foot, and it has some of these key anatomies that are important for for terrestrial bipedal walking as well. Um, and so if, you know if you think about your own foot, for instance, and how it got to be that way, what we can tell from Ardipithecus is that the outside of the foot uh, became more human-like earlier in time, and that Ardipithecus still retained this grasping big toe, but when it pushed off the ground, it used more of the outside of its foot, which if you try doing this, if you try walking around and just push off the outside of your foot, um, it's not as efficient. You can't take long strides. You're taking these short, choppy steps. And so it's not a very efficient way to move, um, but it was good enough. For, for an artipithecus moving from point A to point B on the ground to get to another patch of trees to climb and get itself some food, uh, presumably, or to get away from 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 predators. But I think what artipithecus does for us, in combination with the sort of other set of bookends we have much further back in time, uh, what we would call the Miocene apes, is to me, it tells the story that maybe upright walking, or at least the the, the, the body form from which upright walking evolved was something that was more upright in the trees. And that this effort we have, we've made for the last century to try to explain how upright walking evolved from a knuckle walker may be the wrong question because maybe knuckle walking is derived. Maybe that's what evolves in parallel in the chimpanzees and in gorillas from a common ancestor that was actually more upright to begin with. Uh, but but in an arboreal environment, in the trees. And so it wouldn't be, bipedalism, if this is right, and this is a, this is a hot topic in our field right now, and we really don't have the fossils to know. You know. If you look at the common ancestor, six, seven, eight million years ago, we don't have much. Um, but it's really exciting to think that one of the possibilities is that the common ancestor is not in fact uh, a knuckle walker. And yeah. so the field's pretty split on this.
1: Can I interject really quick? Cause I'm just, since you're mentioning knuckle walking, I am not a paleoanthropologist. I am behind Kara and raise her eyebrow. She's like, really? No, I am not, Kara. (laughs) But I PA'd for David Strait when I was in grad school who studies wrist morphology. And I remember him talking about this problem and saying, we couldn't have possibly evolved from a knuckle walker because there's this, because there's a yeah. little thing that locks out and doesn't allow the wrist to bend like this. And so do we know that or are, am I out of date or?
2: No, 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 no. So so Dave Strait makes a pretty compelling case and others have made a compelling case as well that there are these these hints in, especially it's in the wrist, that would be these, these kind of echoes of a... Of a knuckle walking, of a knuckle past, um, and one of them is th- is the fusion of a couple of wrist bones that you see in the African apes, but not in orangutans. And the argument is that um, why would this have ha- and we have it too? Why would this have happened unless the common ancestor was a knuckle walker? Um, but what we you know what, what we see all the time in in evolution is, is are changes that happen sometimes randomly, sometimes through drift, that really selection or not acting on at all, and maybe this is happening in an arboreal environment, the fusion of these two bones, and then it's pre-adaptive for a knuckle-walking uh, hand posture. And so you still could have, you know, either explanation then make sense uh, in light of those data. And so this is, again, one of those situations where if you lay out the comparative anatomy, you know, you got your genetics down, you got a comparative anatomists saying, okay, we've got, we've got chimpanzee and, and gorilla anatomy and bonobo anatomy. You can't forget about bonobos, orangutans, and, and gibbons, and humans. Okay, what pattern do we see? Um, you end up usually with pretty equal likelihoods that this the common ancestor is a knuckle walker or the common ancestor isn't, and knuckle walking evolved independently. Something is going to be evolving uh, in parallel uh given that the genetics have essentially laid out for us who's related to whom and that's why we need the fossils could we have figured out the story of human evolution without fossils sure right you you know with comparative anatomy and, and and genetics we'd get a ballpark idea but fossils flesh out what actually happened and the pace at which things happened and 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 the fact that, you know, bipedalism precedes brain enlargement. You'd never know that if you didn't have a fossil record. What I tell my students sometimes is, is you know, with genetics, sure, you, you would be able to figure out that, that alligators and crocodiles are related to birds, that the sister taxa of birds are the crocodilians, but you'd, without fossils, you'd never know about dinosaurs, mm-hmm. right? So, so how awesome is it that we live in a world where fossilization's a thing? And so that's what we're, that's what we're gonna need to answer this question of what did those six, seven, eight, nine, ten million year old African apes, how'd they move? And right now we, we really don't know.
0: So I love this for a lot of reasons and I love this section of the book. And I wanna harken back to something you said about Ardipithecus that you know it got around good enough. And that's something that I, I emphasize with my students so much is that evolution doesn't have a goal evolution is just good enough to get you to the next generation and and that's really how it works uh but also another thing i do with my students is i lay out all of the kind of absurd human you know bipedalism hypotheses from the (laughs) trench coat hypothesis aquatic ape and all of that and i have them take them apart like i don't give them my my opinion on any of these like These are theories, tell me the pros and cons for each. And I'll be honest, I've been so out of the paleoanthropological world, I have not been as as up to date about this kind of upper limb supported arboreal bipedalism hypothesis, which is, Mm -hmm. don't anyone ever adopt that name. Um, (laughs) And and so like it blew my mind and it makes so much sense. And your book is going to fundamentally change how I run my, my introductory class. And so I very, very much appreciate it. And now I have no idea where I want to go with all of this because there's so much going on. But you also talk about some really interesting things that bipedalism, bipedalism has messed up for us as humans today. And and this hit me hard because it is it is allergy season right now. And your comment about the maxillary sinuses draining upward blew my mind, Jerry.
2: <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, this is awesome paper that I that I came across. I mean, one of the one of the most enjoyable things for me about writing this book was how much I learned. And, you know, cause there were, there was, you know, maybe about a quarter of this that I was able or a third of this that I was able to write from my own work, but yeah, they're all, you know, I don't, I don't study the maxillary sinus. And um, there was this fabulous paper that was done looking at folks with chronic maxillary sinusitis and what works for them. And one of the things that works for them is to get into a prone position uh, for for you know a good chunk of of the morning you know so not not you know, hours and hours but you know get into a prone position for 20 minutes or so and it helps drain the maxillary uh, sinus um, because of its orientation its orientation derives from a quadrupedal past and so what have we inherited in in our bodies we have not inherited a skeleton that is that that is that is um, optimized. For bipedal locomotion, we are modified apes. we were and apes are modified, you know, primates, generalized primates, and so you know, the maxillary sinus is, is one of these issues that humans can suffer from chronic maxillary sinusitis. You know, hernias are also one of these that, that uh, mentioned quite a bit as a result of, of our bipedal posture. Um, We could get into childbirth as well, uh, where the, the changes to the pelvis require rotational birth in the majority of, of, of human births, which um, then how have we solved that? Well, we have helpers during, during birth. Um, So we've solved it culturally this this challenge and then you know to me the 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 absolute nightmare of the human body is the foot that if you want to have a structure that um stores elastic energy that that can contact the ground that that's flexible enough to then absorb forces from the ground and store elastic energy but then can convert itself to some rigid lever to push off the ground um, you wouldn't make it out of 26 individual parts if you were taking a a, a, you know an engineering course and that was your design you'd fail miserably Um, and in the natural world we do see feet uh, from bipeds that are more sort of optimized for this locomotion so what i'm holding up on the screen right now is an ostrich foot and an ostrich foot um, is is made of just you know a few bones it doesn't have 26 bones it's got about eight bones um, and these are fused together, tarsals and metatarsals. And it's mostly tendinous and it stores elastic energy. And ostriches run 40, 45 miles an hour. But humans um, have inherited uh, a mobile ape foot. And over the course of the last 6 million years, or probably less, because our earliest hominin ancestors were still climbing, like Ardipithecus. Uh, we have tinkered, or evolution has, has tinkered with that, that anatomy. What I describe in the book is, and what, I've, what you know, colleagues and I have talked about, is it's, it's duct tape and paper clips, just holding these bones together, and it makes them just good enough to survive. But evolution doesn't care about your comfort. And so we end up with all these problems, foot problems. We are susceptible to ankle sprains and bunions and plenar fasciitis and hammer toes and, and you name it, there's a problem with, with the foot, you know, and, and, or, or, or you name it and someone, someone has had that problem. And so the foot is, is one of these really vulnerable spots. And yet it's the, it's the icon of a biped, right? That footprint. And yet it's an anatomical nightmare.
1: So it seems so ironic, right? It's like irony on top of irony. So bipedalism comes before big brains, right? Yeah. but uh, and and but walking leaves us with foot pain every day and yet is good for our brains. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, that was the as someone who focuses on stress and cognition, that yeah. was the most profound part of the book for me. So, and I walk every day, right? And I do it for the reasons that, maybe darwin did or lots of other people mm. do, right because it helps my helps me think and yet i have no idea why until reading your book so i wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that
2: yeah i loved researching that part of the book as well because right you know uh, you're struggling with a problem you're trying to you know think think through and maybe it's a scientific problem maybe it's a it's a relationship you're struggling with um you go for a walk and you you finish up your walk and you you, maybe you maybe you have an answer but certainly you have a clearer head um and the the mechanism for that why is that the case has you know is, is sort of a it's a curious thing and one of the things that i that i learned in in researching the book is that your muscles act as an endocrine organ and when they're contracting they release uh, molecules called myokines into the bloodstream. There have been hundreds of them identified. Uh, Carrie, you probably know much more about this than I do. So feel free to jump in and correct me uh, at any point. But um, there are uh, myokines that, that now are known to target regions of the brain. And they, uh, they can enhance... They can enhance growth. Um, the hippocampus, for instance, is influenced by uh, myokine or is you know affected by myokine, uh, known as a BDNF or brain derived neurotrophic factor, which has been called a uh, miracle grow for your brain. And you know it's one of these things that it's it's not like not walking is is some default position. I think I think what we need to realize is that if you're a mammal and you want to get food, if you're any animal, if you want to get food, you have to move. And so moving, you know, from point A to point B is 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 the default. Um, And so these physiological things that happen, these benefits of of walking, again, is sort of the that's the default model. And I think we only see how amazing they are when they're removed, when you don't walk, uh, when we become immobile um, and 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 become more sedentary. Uh, That's when it's, oh wait a minute, there are all these things that are part of our physiological system. That have these benefits, um, and they're only benefits when, when you don't. Uh, 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 it only recognizes benefits when there are members in the population that that don't receive those benefits because they're not moving.
0: So this this connects so well, Chris and I were talking about it in the intro, that we had Dan Lieberman on yeah. earlier in the semester about his new book, and we've talked with Dave Reichlin who is looking at yep. this very specifically, and his student, Katie Sayer, who has like an awesome project and really great work coming out looking at these exact same things, especially looking at cognition, cognitive mm. decline, and physical activity. And so you, you put like a really nice evolutionary part into that as well, which I, I think we all very much enjoyed. And like Chris, I mean, the pandemic basically shut down my power lifting entirely. And so I, I went through a pair of walking shoes <laughs> this past year. And I haven't done that in years because of the miles I put on and it's something I'm going to, I still doing, even though I've now finally gotten back to lifting um, Good. and it's helped the thinking. Like it, I think a lot yeah. better walking, although I will say weightlifting should be studied more for these exact same reasons. <laughs> but no, uh, I agree. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so we need to start wrapping up a bit, only because our poor producers have to edit these, and, and they are graduate <laughs> students, and we want to be, you know, you know, very sensitive to their time. Uh, but so I guess again, you know, the educator side of you comes out so much, but there's the SCICOM part of you as well. And you put a lot of effort into your science communication. And maybe you could speak a little bit briefly into why you put effort into something that, at least within academia, still is not recognized uh, and and rewarded the way it should be. We say as podcast producers. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And, you know, thank you for for what what you're doing um, to promote science literacy and science communication, um, I I think it is of utmost importance and it's our responsibility um, as scientists to be science communicators. Um, I don't see them as being distinct. That if you're a scientist, that that part of your role has to be to communicate to the public what you do and why you do it. Why do you find these these questions that you ask uh, interesting? Um, You know, post- I, I think about you know post Apollo if you think about the, the 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 you know 1960s um the age of space exploration uh when planetariums were being built at public public schools were building planetariums, right? Science was being celebrated and promoted. Um and then there was backlash. Um and it's been slowly happening that through the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, um, there's been more and more and more uh uh anti-science rhetoric um, in the political arena. We've seen funding uh plummet. Um it's so much harder now to get a, a, a federal grant than it was uh a generation ago of, of scientists. Um and why is that uh and I think we often uh blame we blame the the the, the public school system oh the teachers are not doing a good job well I've seen the teachers, and they work their tails off, and they're doing the best they can, and they're being underpaid. Um, and then we blame the politicians. And no, okay, um, I think we need to turn the mirror on ourselves. Um, where is the the SCICOM been? Where is the 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 where have the scientists been uh, for the last you know I don't know uh, thirty years? We 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 sort of gave that role. We said, okay, Carl Sagan, you've got it. Uh, Bill Nye. You can be our science communicator. Uh, uh, Stephen J. Gould, you can write your, your essays and, and some people will read them. Um, and then we retreated back into our labs and we did our work as esoterically as possible. Um, and then we wrote about it in as jargon filled language as possible. Um, where even when I get sent papers to review in my like own field, I have to look stuff up. I'm like, God, you know, and, and, and I get told by reviewers all the time that, that uh, I write too conversationally. And I'm done with it, I'm sick of it, <laughs> I'm done with it. Um, that if we can't communicate to each other, um, how in the world are we gonna be able to communicate to a, to a public who's thirsty for this? They want this, they wanna know about, the, uh, about this, this stuff. We just need to get out of our labs or, or we need to invite them into our labs um, slash and, right? So um, sorry, I'm, I'm going off on, on, I'm on a rant, <laughs> but um, it is so important to me that we get into um, the, the public schools and talk to elementary school kids and talk to middle school kids about what we do and why we do it. Um, get into science museums, work with K-12 teachers um, who need resources. And so, you know, I just worked with a, a teacher down, down the road who wanted to teach her kids about evolution. I packed up a bunch of skulls for her and off they went. And so now they're in some school somewhere, and and might a couple get broken? Yeah, but I'll print out new ones. And that can only happen if you have uh, access to, to to these casts, and you can you can make duplicate you can make duplicate copies. Podcasts, right? Especially during a pandemic, where people are walking and and you know having podcasts that are that are accessible. Um, so I think we I've been so um, inspired by the the. The SciCom efforts to the last couple of years, last four years especially, have been amazing. Seeing all of these new efforts, uh, because I think we all recognized um, at once what had happened, um, and 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 you know reflected on our role in in allowing that to occur, um, allowing science to be vilified, yeah. um, and so you know we're pushing back and and. I, I love what I'm seeing. Um, so I think a decade from now, two decades from now, you're going to see the effects as you know the the middle school kids and the high schoolers and the college kids and the and the undergrads that you're teaching, and they become the informed voting citizens who then are like, Hey, wait a minute, science actually is pretty important, you know. And think about how we're going to get out of this pandemic. You know, the incredible work done by uh, scientists and and now science communicators. Uh, we're going to be talking about the importance of, uh, and, and not just the importance of, but the, the, the science, the mechanism by which these vaccines actually are working. So understanding the mechanism is going to play a large role um, in, in getting the, po- the, the population uh, vaccinated. You can't just tell people to do stuff. Um, you have to explain to them what's happening um, and, and, and trust them that they're going to be able to understand it.
1: So keep doing good work. Is is the sort of mantra, right? Put it out there. Mm-hmm. Keep doing good work. Uh, I want to I want to reinforce what you said about communicating in language that everybody knows. Um, you you have twins. I have triplets who are now <laughs> seventeen. So oh. hearing reading about your twins and and you using them meant a lot to me. And I've been dinged many times for writing too much about my family, um, but that's. Uh, that that those experiences of raising kids have helped me understand growth and development, certainly, yeah um, but many things. And then um, most people in the world can relate to having families more than they can relate to looking at a fossil if they yes. haven't had access to them. So sometimes those are the things, you know, or whatever that help them relate. So um, yep. I appreciate that. And not that Raising twins and putting two books out and um, making casts of all of those skulls doesn't keep you super busy, but maybe you have time for fun too. So we also like to know more about the researcher and what else they do in their life. So what what does Jerry DeSilva Silva do when he is not doing all of those other many things?
2: Oh, thanks, Chris. Um, I, I so I love I, I'm I love to be with my family. Um, you know, I, I I really I have an amazing wife um, who is just brilliant and 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 witty and kind and she's she's amazing. Um, I, and I met her at a, at the Boston Museum of Science. You know, there we are again. You know, science museums having a special place in my heart. Um, she was an educator there as as well. We started um, we started at the Museum of Science in the same day, um, and and met that first day and. So uh I love my family and spend a lot of time with them. I'm really lucky to live in Vermont. Um lots of places to hike and uh and then when the snow falls which is half the year. <laughs> uh we've become a skiing family. Uh, I didn't grow up skiing at all, so this is something I've been I've been learning myself and trying to train my body, which is hard to do to train a 45-year-old body to do something new. But um so lots of skiing and 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 hiking um and I also love sports. I, I grew up a, a, a Boston sports fanatic, um, the Celtics and the Red Sox, and, and uh, so now as my kids are getting involved in sports, um, I'm coaching, and so I coach my my ten-year-old daughter's basketball team, and then my sons, uh, my uh, they're twins, so my ten-year-old son's uh, baseball team uh, as, as well. Uh, so a lot of a lot of family-related stuff, um, and and then you know, again, true true to my my beginnings, I guess. Um, I do a lot of work with my local science museum, so I'm on the board of trustees at the Mottshire Museum of Science, which is this tiny little community science museum. Um, but it is—it's wonderful, and you know, I, I wish for all communities to have their own little science center um, where you know, wondering about the world is valued, and and it's a place where you can go, where you can ask. You know questions and and really learn those skills of science literacy and 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 you know asking those those great questions about why the world is the way it is
0: that is a lot (laughs)
1: i'll just just throw in to be careful coaching because it was coaching soccer that led to me kicking a ball and breaking my toe and needing surgery on that not well-evolved foot of mine (laughs)
0: <laughs> and I don't think we can even count the number of hammies you have pulled. Yeah, oh, no. that is true, oh, but Chris. So many hamstrings I, pulled. <laughs> I am thrown
1: injury, but I just wanted to throw out that one because it was a foot injury that okay. I, still, I still live
0: with. So, all right,
2: so I'll, I'll just stay away from soccer. That's uh, is that the is that the message here? I, I
0: don't know. because
2: baseball I mean, has no risk at all.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: Literally, I was kicking the ball, the basic thing that you do. It really had to do with being in my 40s at the time, now 50, and the body just being like, wait a minute, it's been 20 nope. years since you did this. We we traded off on that that evolutionary tray a long time ago. So.
0: yeah yeah. Uh, well, Jerry, it's been really wonderful to, to catch up on what everything you've been doing, which is a whole hell of a lot. Uh, and it's been really wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today.
2: Thank you, Kara. Thanks, Chris. This was, this was so much fun.